You're listening to Fallen Jackfruit with me, Josh Reed, a podcast series where I sit down and chat with the creative community here in Ho Chi Minh City. I'm joined this week by Jaipal Tuttle. As well as having an extremely accomplished background in physics, having earned a PhD, Jaipal has also devoted a huge portion of his life to the study of the Tale of Q, which is considered the most important piece of literature in Vietnam. In today's episode, we discuss the story and the rich history behind Q, why it is deemed the most seminal piece of Vietnamese literature, how Jaipal is devoting his time to translating the work, how non-Vietnamese speaking people can access the book, and much more. So sit back and relax, get comfy, and enjoy the episode. How you doing, man? Good, good. It's been a, a great day so far, and it's going to be even better right now. Nice. <laughs> you just had your singing lesson. I did. I had a singing lesson. Yeah. It was For little... like an, an hour of pretty um, intense... Uh, singing lesson in Vietnamese, nonetheless. Yeah. And it is an hour and it, it I go in every every time I go in I think this is going to be the time it just goes perfectly well and then when I leave I just want to cry yeah basically. yeah usually the way things go with like music lessons I find yeah you go in full of confidence wanting to learn stuff and then your ego just takes a smash in yeah <laughs> yeah basically let's start actually with a bit about your background sure tell, tell us about yourself you're you're from America but you've been in Vietnam for quite a while now yeah yeah that's right um so it's been about 21 years, right? Mm. Uh, I came here in December of 98 and immediately fell in love with Vietnam. It was the most interesting place I'd ever been. Um, And like, I couldn't put my finger on it. I didn't know like what it was I liked so much. There were so many, you know, smells that I didn't recognize. Like, is that a good smell or a bad smell or what is it? And there was so many sounds. I didn't know what they were, you know, uh, obviously the din of motorbikes. But later I, I came to understand that some of the music I was hearing would be like, blind guitar players being led around by uh, kids and they'd be playing scalloped guitars with, um, you know, battery backpacks, uh, you know, amplifiers that were carrying on their backs. And it was just like nothing I had ever heard. So, you know, all of that put together, the food, everything. Uh, of course, I was, you know, young and single and I was like, okay, this is this is where I'm going to live. Yeah. It's the most interesting place I've, I've ever been in my life. And that was 21 years ago. Yeah. You come from physics background, right? Yeah. And not just like a light physics background, like yeah. you got a PhD, right? <laughs> got a PhD in physics in um, in like just hyper theoretical physics. It was low energy string theory. I was studying evaporating black hole solutions in two dimensional low energy mm. string theory. Uh, and I liked it. I mean, I was, I, was, I was super happy doing it, but I knew I didn't want to do it after graduate school. So as soon as I got my PhD, I never looked back and went to go do other stuff. What did you move on to after the PhD? Banking, <laughs> right. banking, the Wall Street stuff, right? So it was the heyday of, of people with PhDs going to work on Wall Street, and mm. um, I went to go work for a, a you know big huge investment bank, Morgan Stanley, and uh, got involved with a group that was using computers to trade uh, U.S. equities, and it, it, it became very very big, very successful. And so after a few years of that, I was like, okay, I've had enough of of this, um, and that's when I discovered Vietnam, and I'm like, okay, that's it, I'm quitting yeah. and moving. All in. All in, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then, I mean, we're, we're here to talk about like Vietnamese literature today. Tell me how you f- first came across that. How did you, how did you stumble into it, it or? It was almost by accident. Right. Um, so like when I first started studying Vietnamese, right, um, I had heard that there was a, a classic poem that was very, very important to Vietnamese people, and, you know, the society and the culture. And I didn't really pay, pay too much attention to it, but I remember the name. So then, uh, 
okay? About five years go by, right? So during that time, uh, I went to university to learn to speak Vietnamese. I got married uh, and only spoke Vietnamese, lived in the countryside and spoke Vietnamese all day long out in the countryside. And, you know, I thought I knew Vietnamese very well. And then one day I saw this book and uh, I was like, oh, yeah, that's that that story I heard about, um, you know, five years ago. And I picked it up, picked it up to look at it. And I couldn't understand any of the words, right? I was like, well, this is so bizarre. I've, I've just studied, you know, all these years, but I don't recognize any of these words. Just, you know, a couple here or there, I'd understand. But what I came to learn was it wasn't written in contemporary Vietnamese. It was written in the script that they used a thousand years ago that it's called Junom, right? And the, the version that, I, so Junom kind of looks like Chinese characters, but it, it's not exactly the same, but it looks like it. Uh, and the, the copy that I had, had been translated so that it used the modern alphabet that the Vietnamese would use, but it was still Chunom words. And so I was looking at a whole vocabulary that I didn't understand because it was written in a language I didn't understand. So all of a sudden I was like, okay, I better go and try and learn this stuff. And the like obsessive compulsive part of me was like, oh, like, you know, what better thing to do than learn an obscure dead language <laughs> to, you know, um, study a poem written 250 years ago. But it turned out to be just absolutely fascinating. And mm. so for the last... Many years I've just been focusing on that. Yeah, and the piece of literature you studied, it's called Q? Yeah, it's, it's so in English, it's the tale of Q, right? In, in Vietnamese, it's Duyên Q. Mm. And it's the single most important piece of literature in, in all of Vietnam. Uh, and it's been like that for 150 years. It's, it's had its importance for 150 years. It was written, uh, you know, a couple hundred years ago. But um, I, I think it took maybe... 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years for people to really realize how important it was. Mm. And it became profoundly important because it's 3,500 lines of poetry in a uh, very unique rhyming structure that it's six, eight meter. So it makes it very easy, um, uh, very easy to memorize if you're inclined to do so. And it uses incredibly beautiful language. So uh, obviously, 100 years ago, 120 years ago, there were no universities in Vietnam that the average person could go to. There was the Confucian education system. And so they would have to um, study, take Confucian exams here and then go off and study in China or something. But um, but the way people got their education was by memorizing Q. So there's still people there's still people alive today. But back then, there were people who memorized all 3,500 ish lines word for word and by accomplishing that and understanding the words, not only did they get this incredible education in um, in vocabulary and linguistics and, and Vietnamese, but they also got an education in history, in religion, and um, you know what makes Q so fascinating is it just encompasses all of these things that I like to describe as Vietnamese ness, right? So it's it's religion, it's where people fit in in terms of the family and societal structure and how that ancestor worshipery fits into it. So like everything, even, you know, you see these people on the street today who are going through rituals of burning joss paper. It's the most beautiful thing, right? It's what I, I love about Vietnam. And so much of that is ingrained in the culture and passed down through Q um, amongst other places. Mm. So it's just fascinating. Can you tell us a bit about the story of Q? Yeah. Uh, I know like we can't go into, you know, the full the full detail, but like a, yeah. kind of a synopsis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, Okay, so Q, um, she's 15 years old, and 
Um, she's super renowned because she's exceptionally beautiful and she's a great artist and she's a great musician um, and she's super well-educated. Her family is a very middle-class family, uh, you know, not rich, not poor, but they're doing really well. She has a younger brother and a younger sister and things are going pretty good. Um, but unfortunately, her family gets shaken down by some some like crooked cops, right? And they kidnap the father and the brother and help hold them for ransom. And they say, well, um, if you guys don't pony up the money, we're going to kill the father and the brother. And Q says to herself, well, okay, if they kill, uh, well, obviously they don't have the money to pay, right? So Q says to herself, if they kill my father and my brother, that's the end of our family name because there's no other men in the family. So she decides to sell herself, uh, thinking she's selling herself getting married to some guy who's posing as a scholar, um, kind of, you know, well-dressed guy. And she thinks, well, you know, things could be much worse. Okay. Unfortunately, they do get much worse because the guy's really not a scholar. He's sent on a mission from uh, a woman who owns a brothel to go procure young women to work in the brothel. So, of course, you can imagine what happens, right? Uh, Q ends up in a brothel and you know, she's still only 15 years old and all kinds of really bad shit happens to her. Like, you know, from day one, right? Even actually before she even gets there, the guy decides to rape her because she's so beautiful. He's like, I, I don't care. I'm not going to deliver a virgin to the brothel. I know I'll get in trouble, but I just can't control myself. So that's when everything starts going bad. Yeah. So she's like 15 and, and she's, you know, put through the ringer of working in the brothel and then she tries to kill herself and then things go downhill from there. And she tries to run away and things go downhill from there. And it's just this incredible downward spiral. But Throughout the entire story, and this is where it kind of connects into the religion and the belief in reincarnation, you know, just the, the incredible power of, of, of Buddhism and Confucianism and dead ancestor worship being mixed together. There is a spirit from the past who keeps visiting her, a woman named Lu Damtian. Damtian keeps guiding Q and saying, well, look, I know I've already read your name in, in the book of the damned and I know you're pretty screwed, right? I know what's going to happen in your life and I'm just kind of here to help guide you along. So anyway, things just kept getting worse and worse and worse for her. But like whenever stuff would seem like it hit rock bottom, Damtian would appear and say, okay, try to keep going, you know, uh, just hang on a bit longer. But of course things get much, much, much worse. Um, you know, so that she kind of looks back in her life at, at, in the brothel and thinks, well, those were the good old days. Um, she ends up meeting a guy, a guy who comes to see her as a customer at a uh, different brothel she's working at. And this guy is a warlord, right? And his name is Too High. Um, and he, he's, you know, kind of like a hero, but he's also kind of like generally just a bad dude, like like both badass dude and also bad, like meaning not a nice guy. Mm. Uh, he's a commander of armies. He goes out you know, for fun, kind of conquering domains and stealing everything in his sight. But, you know, still generally a good guy. He falls in love with Q and he says, OK, look, I'm I'm totally forgiving of your past. Oh, by then, of course, many years have gone by. Right. And, and Q's, um, uh, you know, just had this. You know, she's slept with thousands and thousands of guys by that point. Right. But he's like, look, I love you. I don't care. Like, it's this incredible message of forgiveness. Like, I don't care about your past. And I'm a pretty bad guy. Like, I go out and kill people and steal their land and, you know, have conquered huge swaths of southern China. So how about, you know, we try to forge a life together and 
live together and so they get married and things are going pretty good and she wants him to quit going out and conquering stuff and he kind of says well i don't really want to do that and she says please you know like can you just stop for me he's like okay so he arranges to have a big banquet with one of his enemies and of course his enemy betrays him and murders him and so q is feeling really bad now at this point because she's uh responsible for the death of the one man who really really loved her and 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 she uh, just feels incredibly guilty and tries to kill herself by jumping in a river. And then uh, there's a, another premonition involved where um, the spirit Lou Damtian tells one of the other characters in the story that this suicide's about to happen. And uh, the person is there waiting to fish her body out of the water before she drowns. And then, yeah, that's about it. That's a, that's, a, that's about it. I mean, there, there's big chunks I left out, I mean, but that's, that's kind of it. It sounds like an incredible story. I mean, like super, super dark and It's super twisted, dark yeah. and there's massive amounts of sex, massive amounts of violence. Mm. And it's not like, it's it's not like candy code. I mean, I guess the way it's written in, in the kind of contemporary versions, if you will, it's kind of candy coded a little bit. Mm. But um, when you, the author who's, who's like the most important Vietnamese author, he... There's a street named after him in every every city in Vietnam. He actually learned about it from a book that was written in China a couple hundred years earlier. Um, and that book is even... It's, it's basically the same story with the same characters, but it's not written in poetic form. It's written as a novella. And that book, it's even darker. Like, it's mm. really it's just sinister like this. You know, the, 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 the sex is... There's more sex and the violence. There's more violence and, you know, where there's you know, drama with ghosts and spirits, there's more so. And, mm. you know, it's, it's just heavy stuff, like yeah, super, super heavy, heavy stuff. But what's amazing about it is even with these things that one would think are, are very taboo to talk about, it's the single most important piece of literature in Vietnamese culture. And every student in Vietnam studies it for a little while mm. in late middle school oh, and okay. high school. Everyone. So there's not there's not one... There's not one kid in Vietnam who hasn't heard of it. By the time they finished high school, there's not one. I mean, you'd have to grow up way in the countryside or way in the forest or be so isolated to have not heard it's of it or studied kind it. Kind of like the the Vietnamese version of uh, To Kill a Mockingbird or something where like every kid in the UK will will read that in like I would high say school, it's even yeah. it's even it's even more widespread than that. Yeah. It, it's it's more like Romeo and Juliet, yeah. right? It would be you'd have a hard time escaping uh, an education in the UK and not have heard of Romeo and Juliet. Mm. And it's the same thing here. You just can't get through Vietnamese school and not know the tale of Q. Yeah. Um it's very watered down what they study now, but um you know, it's still fascinating that they study it you know, mm. a couple hundred years after it was written. So as as well as, you know, you just getting into the book and, and reading it and absorbing it for yourself, um, you've actually gone on to to like become a really like important figure in terms of the academic approach to the book now as well. What has been yeah, like, that's right. What has been like your your kind of so, involvement in the studying of it? Right. So um, in Q, there's a bunch of references where. It talks about her writing down a poem. She'll have a vision or she's been visited by this this um, spirit, Damtian. And she'll often do things like, you know, whip out a, a, a drawing instrument or a brush, I guess, because it wouldn't be a pen, or it'd be a brush and a, a piece of paper. And she'll write down a four-line poem or something like that. Or sometimes she'll have a premonition and she'll whip up a pin out of her hair that was holding up her hair and she'll go to a tree and scratch a poem in the tree 
right? So um, in the story, as it's presented in, in the Nguyen Yu version, in the Vietnamese version, the poems she actually wrote are not mentioned. But if you look at the original version in China, written in, in um, you know, a few hundred years earlier, written in Chinese, obviously, uh, classical Chinese, those poems are all there. And so kind of my academic side of it is translating those poems from classical Chinese, character by character, into um, their Vietnamese language equivalents in a, a language called Han Viet, mm. right, where it's the Chinese pronunciation of the, uh, sorry, the Vietnamese pronunciation of the Chinese characters. Is that related to Han Nom? Yeah, so yeah. It's, well, Han, Han, Han Nom is yeah. like the literature name. Yeah, Han Nom studies would be like encompassing literature that was written in, in Han or, or Nom. Mm. Um, so then, uh, yeah, so I take it from classical Chinese into Han Viet, then into contemporary Vietnamese, quote ngu, so contemporary spoken Vietnamese, and then into English. And so it's this kind of, you know, like primary and secondary and tertiary translation, trying to um, translate these into, well, even trying to translate them into Vietnamese is hard. Mm. Um, it's been done a couple times, but not in many decades. Um, but it's never been translated into English. Right. And so I'm trying to scramble to do that before I either get too old and die or something or I lose interest or something. Yeah. So it, it's, it's that. And then um, also collecting and preserving the old books mm. is, is something that I've got super involved in. And Because like, like you've said, it's, it's gone through so many uh, processes um, from its kind of inception. That's right. And then you'll be able to explain this better than me, but there was a point in time where the language was outlawed. That, that, so it was. So, um, so the French, right. When they were here, in the late 19th century um, realized that in order to control Vietnam, they could not have a literate class that could read Chinese because they could pass messages around that the, the French couldn't understand, right? And so um, learning, learning Vietnamese, and by then the French had already introduced the modern writing system, learning, learning Vietnamese and being forced to write with the modern writing system, the Latin, Latin script, um, um, put the French at a huge advantage because very quickly they could come up to the learning curve and understand what the Vietnamese were writing, right? And of course, um, you know, they wanted to yeah, obviously control Vietnamese as much as possible. So they outlawed, uh, you know, of course, under penalty of death. If you were caught um, writing or in possession of Chinese, written Chinese, and um, they knew you could understand it, then maybe they'd give you a warning or something. But, you know, uh, many, many people lost their lives over the course of a number of decades until they basically eradicated it. By the early 20th century, there were very few people left alive in Vietnam that could read or write Chinese. And so what happened then is all of these great works of literature, poetry, um, medicine, uh, documents relating to trade, society, for hundreds of years... Um, people became illiterate to everything that had happened because all of that, all of that was written in, in Chinese. Um, you know, it, the educated Vietnamese had gone uh, through the Mandarin education system and gone off to China to study. So all of their documents, everything was written in, in, in uh, Chinese. And right. So the society became functionally illiterate over the course of a number of decades. And um, in the process, so much of, of the message for in something like Q was lost because where when it was picked up again, 
in the 30s and 40s, uh, 1930s and 1940s, people were kind of starting from scratch again, trying to understand what they had missed over the last decades while, while their fathers and grandfathers were forbidden to study uh, properly or were killed. I mean, it's it's just it's incredible um, that it's been able to endure that as well. Like, I think it's definitely add, yeah. added to it now. But yeah, unfortunately, like over time, yeah, it's maybe had this element taken away from it. it so it, it has. And, and then there was this big um, resurgence in the 50s. Uh, and some very important translations were done in, in the 50s. And all, um, not just translations, but annotations. That, because remember, it's written in this language that most people can't read. Um, so it, it's, um, you know, any, any, uh, book of Q comes with pages and pages and pages of notes, right. Mm. Saying what each line means. So there were some major annotations and, and notes that were written in the 1950s and sixties, but then things went bad again in Vietnam. Right. Right. And then, so there's like more lost decades. Um, there was kind of a scramble around 1972 or 1973 to do a bunch of academic work on it. And then obviously 1975 happened and then it's just like a black hole again for decades, mm-hmm. right? Um, I, you know, but just everything just vanished um, in terms of scholarship for 20 or 30 years yeah. after that. And um, now, you know, now there, there's still many people that are interested in it. There's still loads of academic work being done on it. It's been translated into 40 languages, I believe. Yeah. Um, it's kind of funny, like somehow I, I you know, I'm the resident American expert in Vietnam and in Q, even though I don't really understand it so well. <laughs> it's only because there's no one else, you know. There's, I know a couple a couple yeah. of Americans that understand it better than me, but they're not here. So, um, you know, when I look at what they know and, and how much they've studied, I'm like, man, you guys really understand this right. stuff. And I still, after all these years, feel like a novice. <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's spread around the world. Yeah. How have, you, how have you found um, the translating in terms of, um, so you're going from, from one language into Vietnamese and then into yeah. English, how are you maintaining the kind of poeticness to it? So that that's always the the, the tough thing, right? Because it's it's metered poetry and a very special structure, right? In terms of how many words there are per line and how many lines there are per poem, so it follows classical Chinese poetry. And like the approach that I always take is just try to tell the story because what happens is, uh, you know, to translate the poem and just kind of make it make it intelligible rather than try to stick with the meter because a lot of guys that translate stuff they'll stick with the meter and so they're forced to choose words that don't really convey what the original author was trying to do or they'll say well if it's a you know five line poem then i can never use more than five lines to convey what it's about and i guess i i I try to stick to that rule more like stick to five lines Mm. but I, i don't really constrain myself to the number of words and then also if I have to break the five line thing too, because for me, especially because knowing that they've never been translated into English and knowing that that nobody else is working on this stuff, um, I'm trying to get it right. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and I'm less worried about the, the you know, the scholarship of like, oh my God, you know, he used one extra word in the mm. third line. So therefore his academic prowess is nil. You know, it just, <laughs> it just doesn't matter. Yeah, I think like as long as like, the the meaning of the story is coming across yeah. as, as the main thing uh, yeah. then yeah i've got to think like surely that's the the paramount thing yeah 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 and the, the the poems right um you know there's about 50 of them um and you know they're all they're all fascinating just like super you know super beautiful super dark right mm-hmm. all of them because they 
They're all about um, these moments in Q's life where she had these ultra intense emotions, and for example, uh, had you know just been visited by the spirit Damtian uh, and knows that she needs to go through the act of committing suicide in order to actually um, be saved from death because she gets to this point where she has to actually go through the process of killing herself only to be rescued before her body actually expires, before she actually dies. But she has to go through the act, mm. right? And she, So at this super intense moment of her life where she realizes, okay, now I've got to kill myself, right? Um, she, at the last moment, is like, okay, well, I better write down a poem before I kill myself. And so... So all yeah, all the poems that. are yeah like intertwined within the story as well. Yeah, they are right. They 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 show up um, from the very beginning and they go all the way to the very end. And what again, what's fascinating is is in the version that was written two hundred fifty years ago by Nguyenu when he took it from this original Chinese story into poetry, six eight meter poetry. He doesn't write down what they are. He just d- says you know. And then she wrote down ten poems. Right. Uh, and he writes down the the title of the 10 poems he's like poem number one was titled this etc etc but he never writes down what they were mm. uh but you if you go back and look at the chinese version in chinese you can find them in terms of your academic approach to all this you've been building up this book collection over time um, yeah and i mean i guess i guess you do you do that a lot with um, rare editions of the the tale of q yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And, and, and materials related to it so um i you know the the first book I saw was not a rare version, but um, when I finally saw a rare edition, and for me, rare means something that's older than like 50 or 60 years old or so, certainly before 1975. Um, um, their, you know, their beauty is just unbelievable. I mean, here, actually, I'll, yeah, I'll, you I'll brought, hand you, you brought yeah, a brought along. You, yeah. you, you, you can take a look at, look at those. I'm going to be super, super uh, delicate that, with that, them. <laughs> that, that, that's a super old book from yeah, ni- 1927 incredible. or so. Wow. Um, but, um, you know, when I when I realized how rare they were, um, and how beautiful they were, I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll just start collecting them. Um, and so I built up the one of the largest private collections in the world yeah. of um, old old literature related to Q, and it, it's certainly the largest in South in the South mm. of Vietnam. There's um, a collector in the North who has uh, a much larger collection, um, but he's got resources well above and beyond anything I could ever do. But for me, you know, when I when I first started seeing these old books, I, uh, I was like, OK, well, I'm just going to get them all. I'm going to buy them all, not as an investment, but as a way to or, or with the intention of preserving them, because uh, I mean, as you see, like they're falling apart, right? They're yeah. turning to dust. Right. So they need to be cared for the right way. Otherwise, yeah. especially with the pollution now, the paper is just going to disintegrate. Um, and. You know, kind of the whole intent is to preserve whichever ones of them are left, the 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 you know antique books, if you will, and then donate them to different universities or foundation or something. Right. Eventually, okay. but yeah, I just wanted to get them get yeah. them all in a way to kind of save them, uh, because you know they're so rare and the elements are just destroying them. Can you like tell us some stories of like how you've stumbled across like these rare editions? Are there like any kind of like crazy like we call them in the UK? We call them a uh, car boot sales. Literally just like a car park full of uh, yeah. people selling shit out yeah. of the boot. And sometimes you'll find something cool. Yeah. Um, so I guess I started out finding them in, in used bookstores, right? And then as people found out I was collecting them, you know, kind of 
word went around that there was this crazy American guy who was <laughs> buying all these these old books. Um, and so I bought uh, I bought an I bought somebody else's collection, an older professor's collection. Um, and so that that was kind of fascinating. I guess the actual purchasing the the stories are not not that interesting. But what is interesting is is I mean I guess first of all with, with every one of these books I don't really view them as being my book, right? I view them as like I'm in I'm the owner of it now. I'm in possession of it now, but it belonged to somebody else decades before me, you know, and it was their book. I mean this book, uh, you know, somebody was possessed to go into a a, a bookstore and buy that book and. 1951 i believe yeah um and it meant something to them and so mm. the beauty of all these books or many of these books is they have inscriptions written in them by the original owners or oftentimes the people will leave pieces of paper or notes or just personal belongings inside of the books uh and so with so many of the books that i have i'll open them up and there'll be a note written um decades ago you know uh you know from a a man to his friend or a man to his wife or, right. you know, one of them, uh, I didn't bring it today, but it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's got this little card inside and it's from a mother who's writing to her children via a, a cousin who has just come to Saigon. And the note basically says, um, you know, could you stop and buy some sugar and come over <laughs> and I'll brew some coffee and I want to talk to you about how things are. And this, um, you know, it was decades ago. Dec mm. And he's like, you know, uh, she's like, I know, I know my kids. Um, I sent them a letter, but I haven't heard back if they received it yet. Uh, I hope that, um, uh, you know, I hope you can find out whether my kids have got this letter that I, I sent. Yeah. And so whatever reason, she wrote this note and then left it in the book. And then, you know, um, decades went by and whatever happened to these people, probably not something good, uh, happened to these people um, after 1975. Uh, you know, I ended up with their yeah with their books i mean it's right? it's kind of yeah like you're inheriting a, a piece of yeah well vietnam's past really right it, it is and uh, for a whole bunch of reasons um th like the politics you know right rightfully or wrongfully the politics of what happened in 1975 made it so many of the people that own these books um didn't make mm. it or they fled the country uh because they were educated in a in a system that um, after 1975 kind of wasn't... It was on the losing side. It was on the losing right. side. Yeah. So yeah, many of, you know, of, of the the many, many books I have, many of their original owners did not meet a good fate. So right. I feel like, okay, you know, politics and history aside, I'm owning something that was special to somebody at some time and their messages and their inscriptions and notes and that all belongs to them and mm. some of them... Uh, may still be alive, but I've never met any of the original owners right. of any yeah. of the books. And certainly, I mean, this this one's from 1927, so the, the people involved this, there. Are this alive. one on top. Uh, there, this yeah. one's this one's from like, the 50s, and this is wow. this one's also from the 50s. This one's 1927. What is like? What is like the oldest copy that you have? Do you? Oh, uh, I have know? I have I have um, one or two that are more than 100 years old, wow. and they're really falling apart. I mean, they're yeah. barely held together. Right, and it's not it's not just uh, the tale of Q that you have. Uh, you've got like uh, is it like Dick? dictionary type yeah lots of books, lots of yeah. lots of dictionaries um because in order to you know even even to understand classical chinese you, you just can't use an app to mm. figure it out um you've got to use old dictionaries so not just not just yeah. dictionaries but old dictionaries <laughs> but then to go to gnome to study Nome, the original vietnamese written language um 
you've got to use really old dictionaries and there's great tools online to help you, but you still got to have those dictionaries. And so yeah. I've just tried to collect as many of those as possible. And I, you know, I, I don't have an education in, in classical Chinese um, and I don't know if that helps me or not, but what I've learned is I've, I've learned how to use the dictionaries and how to use any kind of modern technology, optical readers or anything to get a clue about what the symbols mean mm. and then go back and, and in context, figure out um, what was there. And I, I, I would, you know, dare say I, I don't even get it close to being right, but at least I'm trying. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but yeah, loads of old dictionaries and there's old, old, all kinds of old documents related to and, and the classical study of classical Chinese and other old stuff. Yeah, it sounds like a yeah, like a very like lengthy, lengthy process. Like, what stage would you say that you're at right now in terms of? Oh man, there was that translation. That's, that's the that's the weirdest thing, right? So I don't even I don't even know how to answer that because I I I, I consider myself a beginner, right? Um, Vietnam considers me an expert, <laughs> the the expert, right? Of uh, the American expert. Um, but I look at the other people I know who, who understand this. And I'm like, I, w I won't live long enough to understand that as well as you do. And even if I live, you know, another 40 years or, or whatever, I still would consider myself a beginner because you, you just have to you, you have to spend you know, like you can't even do it in one lifetime. Yeah. You know, are you are you finding that you're you converse with a with a community on this at all you know like a vietnamese academic so uh, oh yeah, yeah 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 for yeah. sure and it's it's fun it's very endearing because they're all they're, they are all very old mm. and um you know i have a few friends in their um you know late 70s and 80s and you know a couple of people i know and i've met in the 90s and it's, it's beautiful because i show them these old books and it brings tears to their eyes right because they just remember you know it, what it was what it, what it was like to be i guess young and studying you when they were doing their thing you know yeah. you know it's amazing to interact with these old people and they're they're not going to be around much longer and mm. so uh you know i do like a lot of a lot of television work and newspaper stuff and it's kind of kind of fun it's yeah. always fun i mean you're 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 doing a lot in terms of like yeah like spreading the word around you know your te television um you've you've sent me sent me an interview that you did uh, on vietnamese television and am i right in thinking you do like guest lectures at like schools or uh, uh, universities? I, I will. I would, actually, actually, I'll do the first one this year. I, oh, I, awesome. I haven't done that because um, I've got to, I've got to, uh, I've got to do them in Vietnamese. And right. uh, what's funny is uh, ac like academic Vietnamese is, is something that um, I'm not, I'm not super good at. Like I'm l luckily um, with all the years that I've been here, most of my Vietnamese has come from having fun. Uh, you know, going out, eating and drinking, spending a lot of time in bars, mm. which, of course, I love to do. Um, so I'm really good at, at informal, like, why well, I wouldn't even say I'm really good. I, I'm, I'm good at informal, casual Vietnamese, but addressing uh, a, a crowd of professors um, at conf a conference, which is, is something I'll do, um, yeah, I think, April. Right. It's coming around pretty fast. Yeah, yeah, I've got not to, too far I've got, to, I've got to really brush up on the academic stuff. Yeah. Right. I'm, I'm better at reading and writing, especially reading the old, mm. you know, Han Viet, um, and stuff where I can take my time to translate it. Yeah. And, and you know, whether it's Junome or Hanviet. So you're going from Hanviet to Vietnamese to English and then back into academic Vietnamese. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's funny. Like a huh? bit of a head fuck. <laughs> yeah, basically that basically that's it. And what happens is um I slip up all the time and, and whenever I'm whenever I'm talking to the older ac academic people, 
Uh, I haven't done any, any university lectures yet, but whenever I'm just meeting these people, mm. if it's just one-on-one, I usually slip up and start speaking slang to them or bar talk, whatever, because that's <laughs> where I get most bar of my talk. practice. Yeah. Luckily. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, consider that a virtue, not a, not, not a yeah, thing. Yeah. Like I was going to ask, I mean, it's been translated into English, but for uh, English listeners of the podcast, yeah. you know, which I'm guessing, you know, maybe the majority are, um, because it's in English, how can they access this the, the Taylor Q? Um, so there's a couple, right? And they're, they're both very different from each other. One of them was um, done in 1954. And that translation, um, the translator takes it out of the 6-8 meter poetry and writes it in novella form again, right? So it's a very fast read. Uh, it's a few hours. And the um, good thing about this one is it's available on Amazon. You can just get it as like a you know Kindle download or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I'll give you the, the link information for that later. Um, but the guy's name was Le Suentui, the translator. And just in a few hours reading it, you get the whole picture. He glosses over all the sex and violence. He, you know, candy coats it more, <laughs> be, being kind of a, I guess, a proper proper English gentleman as he was. Or, or uh, sorry, he's Vietnamese. But I guess um, in the context of... Uh, um, where he was educated and how we how the whole translation came about, the um, education that he had probably wanted him to sugarcoat it as much as possible, right? right? Yeah. So it's very it's not even soft core, it's not even core. It's just well, he tells the story, but whatever. Um, and then there's an academic version uh, that's very good in the '80s by a Yale professor, and and it's it's more rigorous. He keeps it in six eight meter poetry in his translation into English, but you, there you really get the whole story and there's lots of notes and takes takes a lot longer to read but it's also um fantastic and well worth it yeah Um, the only thing i would advise staying away from is there's a new penguin translation um that's pretty crappy and uh you know i kind of already made a lot of enemies by saying this but kind of all the the q academics have also the author uh, i'll just kind of say he wasn't really qualified to do the translation he kind of pulled the wool over penguin's eyes and um, Penguin published it without getting it peer-reviewed. If any one of us had um, seen it, we would have said, no way can you publish this, especially not under the, the Penguin name. It's it's as if you know a, a new translation of Romeo and Juliet magically appeared out of thin air, and Penguin published it without asking anybody what they thought of it. Mm. So, you know, for whatever reason, the guy did what he did. Um, I mean, that's, but, I still think that's crazy that, you know, Penguin didn't get it peer reviewed. Yeah, it's just bizarre to me. <laughs> it is bizarre. It's it's completely bizarre, right? Yeah. They they didn't ask anybody. Like, yeah, not, there's not one person that would have said, "Oh yeah, this is good. Go for it, yeah. Penguin. Good job. Kudos to you." Yeah, stay clear of that one then, maybe. Yeah. And also, the tale of Q has been uh, influencing your your own art form, right? As well. Yeah. Um, you've got a a band project. Yeah. Uh, Pretty broken dolls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how is how is the the? I'm, I'm curious. Is, yeah, no, well, I've always, we... I've always, I've always like you know, kind of from just my my earliest days as a a, a young, young punk, right? Uh, the style of music I was most interested in in the eighties, because I'm I'm older than most of the people you you interview, um, but the kind of stuff I was most interested in the eighties, early eighties, and throughout the nineties was always, you know, dark goth, heavy industrial type stuff, but. Um, you know, kind of more more on the goth side than the industrial side, but the subject matter, right? I've always, you know, been drawn towards kind of songs that are quite dark and heavy. And of course, Q is so dark and so heavy that in some of the Pretty Broken Doll songs, I've kind of gone through, gone for kind of that same theme of like, well, here's dark, heavy material yeah. where there's like 
a bit of sorrow going on. I mean, it's definitely uh, an inspiration point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, ultimately, what I'd like to do is I'd like to figure out how to how to get get those songs into the hands of of people who somehow would be able to get interested in the music, right? As, as because it's not the most popular style of music anywhere in the world, but <laughs> particularly here in Vietnam. But also to have the subject matter get closer and closer to kind of traditional. Um, not if it's not just just cute traditional perhaps Tang era poetry and Chinese Tang era poetry, which is you know kind of beautiful stuff. So as well as the Taylor Q, are there any other kind of Vietnamese pieces of literature that you've stumbled into as well? I mean, I know like Q is like the, yeah. the predominant piece. Uh, yeah, but so um, yeah, I mean, there's 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 one author I just love, and and um, um, he was around in the. Um, early 20th centuries, and his name's Wu Trong Fung. He was from Hanoi. Uh, he was just this brilliant young guy. He died very young, died of tuberculosis. He was only 27. But he cranked out so many interesting books. He wrote plays. Um, it, like Some of them are, are reportage where he's doing like, um, he, he wrote an entire book on the uh, kind of the institutionalization of venereal disease in Hanoi. Um, and how it was used by the French to control mm. Vietnamese, you know, it's kind of it's pretty heavy stuff, yeah. right? You know uh, how how you know via uh, a you know low cost prostitution, venereal disease was allowed to proliferate mm. in the nineteen nineteen tens, for example. But then he also wrote comedies, right? He he wrote a super famous comedy uh, in English. It's it's uh, translated been translated. The name of the book is called Dumb Luck. Um, in Vietnamese, it's soda. Uh, he he just cranked out all this stuff and then died at age twenty seven. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Part of the twenty seven club. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, ex exactly. Club. What is next for you? You're in the translation process yeah. for Q still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just you know, keep keep working on those fifty poems. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah, I know it's it's not that it doesn't sound like that many fifty poems, but they're. You know, written in classical Chinese, and classical Chinese is brutal to understand. So yeah. it's going to take me a little while. For sure. Um, <laughs> and then work on the music. I, I told myself yeah. that in 2020, I want to work more on the music stuff and just take a break because it's been so many. It's been full, uh, full, you know, full force on the translation stuff mm. for for so long. You I definitely wanna... need other other outlets to, uh, to yeah. help. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, I still work on it, but um, 2020, I want to I want to do more music stuff. You know, the um, like I thought about it, I was like, okay, well, you know, assuming I live another 30 years. Then um, if I do 29 more years of research on Q, it's just as good as if I do 30. That extra year is not going to make, right. make or break anything, <laughs> right? So this year I just want to have kind of more more time devoted to writing and recording music, playing, yeah. hopefully playing live. And you're writing a, in a, like a blog, blog uh, section, is it Bliss? For, for Bliss, yeah, yeah. I get, I'm a, a self-proclaimed music critic yeah. um, for Bliss Saigon. Also I have a... a, a kind of a thing that I'm doing. It's also kind of a bloggy type thing. It's called Vietnam Sound System. So it's, you know, just www.vietnamsoundsystem.com where it's all one word. And what I want to do there is I want to kind of come up with a catalog of all bands in Vietnam that are doing original work. Yeah. Um, I don't care what genre it is. Vietnam's like the hardest country in the world to be an artist doing original work, whether you're, you know, doing, you know, it just doesn't matter what genre it is or what you're trying to accomplish. Uh, if you're doing original stuff here and it's successful, man, more power to you. Mm. It's the hardest place. So what I'm trying to do there is at least get a, a, a centralized location of 
who's who and who's doing what. Awesome. Well, <laughs> uh, it's been great chatting to you, man. Thank you so yeah, much for coming thanks. on and teaching me a bit about the uh, Taylor Q. And yeah, yeah, I any, definitely hope to check it out at some for point. For sure. Like any, any questions, for, for, you know, for, let me know. And yeah. Anybody who's listening, if you have any questions. Yeah, yeah. Send, send an email easy, in to me. Um, easy to, yeah, easy to track sure. down. We'll talk about it. it. <laughs> in English or Vietnamese, happy to talk about it in Vietnamese. Too. Awesome. Thanks so much. Cheers, yeah, dude. cheers. Thanks again for listening to today's episode of Falling Jackfruit. I dropped the Amazon link in the description to the Tale of Q where you can purchase the ebook, as well as to the Pretty Broken Dolls Facebook page in case you want to check out Jai Pal's music project. If you've enjoyed listening to today's episode, please give us a like, subscribe, or leave a five-star review wherever you're listening, because it really does help. You can give us a like on Facebook at Falling Jackfruit and on Instagram at Falling Jackfruit Podcast. And if you'd like to get in touch about coming on as a guest, or if you'd like to recommend someone as a guest, or if you just want to leave some feedback in general, please send an email to fallinjackfruit at gmail.com. We'll be taking another short break over Tet, but we'll be back soon with another episode. Chuk mung namoy to all our followers in Vietnam, and thanks again for listening.